You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Should we get into a Bible study? We have some great ground to cover today. Uh, Really looking forward to getting into this with you. Uh, So open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. And the ushers are in the aisle. And uh, we'll give you a Bible if you need one. And you do need one. So raise your hands and and, uh, get your Bible and pen and paper open. We are looking at the life of Joseph. And we've called this little mini-series within Genesis... Joseph, a prefigure of Jesus. A prefigure of Jesus just meaning God is doing a work in his life that is going to be an amazing foreshadow, an amazing prophetic view, if you will, of the plan of salvation that God planned before the earth was ever created. Do you know that the plan of salvation was laid out beforehand And even though we see all this sin in the world, God still said it was worth it to him. And he uh, gave everything, uh, Jesus coming to the cross uh, to bring us and to restore what sin had lost. And God has chosen to choose Israel as a nation to himself uh, that he made a covenant with. And that he is going to bring the Messiah through. And now that Israel is, uh, has 12 sons, these are going to be the 12 tribes of Israel, God already is showing his plan of salvation, the life and ministry and work of Jesus Christ through Joseph. Joseph has no idea that he is living out a prophetic foreshadow of Jesus. Uh, but it's like God cannot even wait. It's like he says, hey, I want to tell you about my son. And we're going to see that in the, in the life of Joseph. So very interesting, very cool how God has done all this. If you haven't been with us, uh, we are in kind of a part two today of, of Joseph, uh, the prefigure of King Jesus. And here's what's going on. Uh, Joseph was the favorite of his dad. Uh, he was the the little icon of love in the family house, right? He was the son of Rachel, which Rachel was the wife that he loved. Um, He had uh, just was smitten with her. And Joseph came from Rachel. And so he's uh, just got a lot of favor for this boy. Uh, Joseph is a good kid. Uh, We saw last week at 17 years old, he's tattling on his brothers. Hey, dad, I just thought you might want to know... Reuben did this or, you know, whatever, right? And, uh, and that didn't go over real well with his brothers. On top of all that, what did his dad give Joseph? If you were with us last week, what did he give him? A coat of many colors. And you say, well, big deal. No, 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 that was a big deal. That was a position of double inheritance. That was the, uh, the coat that belonged to the firstborn. And Reuben had sinned against his dad in a big way and And uh, Jacob or Israel, instead of giving that coat to Reuben, gave that coat to Joseph. 
And so as a combination of all of these things, his brothers despise him. They're jealous. They're jealous of his character, his favor with his dad, this double inheritance that they're getting. And on top of that, God's hand seems to be upon him. God gave him these dreams, these prophetic dreams. And Joseph, not being real mature, very young, uh, did not express them real well to his brothers, expressed them in a way that said, hey, I'm going to be ruling over you. Uh, and now it just it fueled the fire even more. And so we looked last week, and Israel, Jacob, sends Joseph to go check on his brothers who are keeping the sheep about 50 miles away. Go check on them, see how they're doing, and bring a word back to me, and let's just make sure that you know all the brothers and all the herds are okay. And so he sends Joseph off. As Joseph is coming, his brothers, his 11 brothers, excuse me, 10 brothers, one other brother is still at home, too young. Uh, uh, as his brothers see him coming from a far way off, we looked last week, what do they, they plot to do? To kill him. Uh, oh, there comes our brother. And they plot to kill him. And uh, uh, God is going to use all this. Uh, God, uh, Jacob is going to, excuse me, Joseph is going to go through a really tough time we're going to see today. But God is going to use all this to do something, to build his man, uh, to make him a man of character, to make him a man of substance. You see, God has huge plans for Joseph. And those huge plans require something. What do they require? Character, character, wisdom, stature, the ability to endure hardship, the ability to think of others. And these things do not come to us automatically. These things do not come to us without divine intervention. These things do not come to us on easy street. And so God is going to bring Joseph through some difficulties to build these character traits in his life. And so I've titled the message today, Joseph, when God builds a man. And by man, I mean the word generically, right? I'm talking men and women. That's obvious, right? When God builds a human, when God builds a man, and we're going to look at some of the... Uh, the sculpting that God does. Uh, God would tell Jeremiah, the prophet, that uh, we, uh, we are his clay. We are his workmanship. And he would tell Jeremiah to go into the potter's house and to watch the potter shaping the, the clay on the wheel as the wheel spins and he shapes it. And he says, can I not do for the house of Israel that which the potter does for the clay. And here we see God's molding, shaping hands on Joseph's life today. And may I just say, sometimes when the potter puts the shape in us that he wants, you know what we do? Ooh, no, I don't want to go there, right? Uh, some of those shapes get uh, brought into us by the potter's hands through difficulty. And so we're going to see that today. Uh, let's open up our Bibles, Genesis 37. And let's pray as we open God's word. Genesis 37, are you there? Find your way to verse 18 and let's pray. 
Uh, Lord, we come before you. We are so in awe of you. I thank you so much for revealing your ways to us, your mind, your heart. Lord, what a privilege that you have given these stories by divine inspiration, that you have governed in the affairs of man, and that you are an amazing father, interested in every nuance of our life, molding and shaping us. So Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us a heart to receive and a mind to grasp what is the excellent, wonderful plan of your love for us. And instead of rebelling against you like stiff clay, Lord, may our hearts be open and supple to your leading and to your guiding hand. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Backing up just a little bit where we left off last week, let's pick up in verse 18. Now, when they, that's Joseph's brothers, saw him, that's Joseph afar off. Yeah, dad had sent him, took him quite a while to get there. Uh, They're now in Dothan, which is about 64 miles away from where uh, Joseph had started. They finally see him afar off. And before he even came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, look at this dreamer. This dreamer is coming. And the Hebrew is actually, look at this master dreamer, uh, this uh, Lord of the dreams. Uh, Come, therefore, let us kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Uh, Here we see this is full-blown, premeditated murder. Complete with what? An alibi. Uh, All the way through. Just amazing, right? Uh, But Reuben, his firstborn, Israel's firstborn, Jacob's firstborn, heard it. And he wanted to deliver him out of their hands. And he said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness. And do not lay a hand on him. And then it gives us a little parenthetical statements here. He said, he said this, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. We left off here last week and we saw that Reuben had good intentions, right? But he failed to stand. He compromised with evil. And uh, I want you to know, he did all this, that he might bring his brother back to his father. And that never happened. Never happened. We need more than good intentions. We need more to do more than say, this is wrong. Oh, I think that's horrible. No, 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 we need to stand and stand firm. And uh, Reuben fails to do that here, even though he knew what was right in his heart. Verse 23, so it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Yeah, they pulled it off. They started beating him. Uh, why did they take that tunic from him? Envy, jealousy, uh, taking the tunic of many colors. Look at how cruel they are. Verse 24, 
they took him and cast him into a pit, uh, into a cistern. Gosh darn it, I made a bunch of slides for you uh, about some really cool cisterns in Israel, and I forgot to put them in. Uh, but the, these cisterns were, were um, these man-made taverns that were, there, were used to gather water. Uh, and you can still see them. When we go to Israel in October, I'm hoping to go look at some of these cisterns. Uh, I have, uh, I, I've seen them. I mean, they're amazing. And they, uh, uh, anyway, they get, they get Joseph and they toss him into this cistern. It was dry, fortunately. Uh, they toss him in there. Uh, they did the same thing, by the way, to a prophet. Do you remember which one? Jeremiah. I love how you guys know your Bibles. Way to go. Yeah, they threw Jeremiah into a, a cistern. Uh, what, you know why? Because they didn't like his message. Uh, it was true. His message came into fruition, but they didn't like it. They threw him into a cistern. Uh, Jeremiah's wasn't dry. It was, uh, was kind of like full of mud. And they threw him in there, and he sank down into the mire all the way up to here, like unmovable in the mire. And he thought he was going to die there. God delivered him, but uh, I get off track so easy. Um, They took him and cast him into a pit. Uh, It's really a cistern, verse 24. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Can you imagine They've just beat their brother up. They've thrown him in a cistern and they're thinking about killing him. And they said, I don't have a barbecue. It's crazy. And they're acting like nothing is wrong. But you know what is interesting? We're going to read in uh, chapter 42 when we finally get there. 20 something years later, they're going to comment about this day. And it's still going to be haunting them. You see, when we do the wrong things, we can act like it's no big deal. You can have a few drinks to make that memory go away. But what happens? God is the hound of heaven. And he sends the Holy Spirit. And he just continues convicting. And we know in our hearts. And you know what happens? Life gets worse and worse and worse when we don't bring our sin to Jesus. And we do more and more things to cover it. And here we see, uh, oh, they act like nothing's wrong, uh, but we're going to learn 20-something years later. No, this, well, this bothered them, and it, it messed up their lives. They sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes, and they looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with all their camels bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. Camels were very expensive animals. It was kind of like a modern-day semi-truck. You had a camel, man. You were, you were wealthy. Uh, you could rent that out, and it was like, you know, uh, that's how you did trade. And so they're carrying all their, all their goods, right? Spices, balm, myrrh, uh, clothing, who knows whatever they have. And they're all going down to Egypt. And uh, you'll notice this is a, a, a company of who? Ishmaelite, who's Ishmael? Abraham's son in the flesh, right? The mistake that he made. Uh, And here they are, Ishmaelites coming down, merchants going to Egypt. Verse 26, so Judah 
said to his brothers, Judah is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah says to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Uh, Wouldn't it be better to make money instead of killing our brother? Uh, Good entrepreneur, right? Uh, I'm not serious. Uh, And so they they sell him. Uh, Verse 28. Then the Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up out of the pit, scraped, beaten, bloodied, bruised, and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. The price of a slave. And they took Joseph to Egypt as a slave. Uh, There was another brother who sold someone for a few shekels of silver as a slave. Do you remember? Who was it? Judas. Yeah, interesting. And here we see the parallels, don't we? Verse 29. Then Reuben returned to the pit. Apparently Reuben wasn't... uh, had got up after that meal and maybe went to use the bathroom or something. I don't know. And he returns and Joseph is not in the pit. And he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, the lad is no more. Where shall I go? What happened to the boy? Uh, so they took Joseph's tunic and they killed a kid of goats and dipped it in the tunic of blood. Excuse me. And dipped the tunic in, in the blood. Uh, why did they do that? Uh, well, let's, let's look. Then, then they sent the tunic of many colors and brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Do you know whether it belongs to your son or not? Is it your son's tunic or not? Uh, what the heck? Uh, is that not incredibly cold? Can you imagine doing this to your father? Uh, Dad, uh, you don't know whose tunic this is, do you? This bloody tunic? Um, and here we see them, man. Uh, they've come up with this plan to cover their own sin. And aren't we masters at covering our own sin? I hope that you and I have never murdered anybody. Um, but you know what I know that we have done? We have sinned a pretty gross sin And we have thought instantly how to hide it and how to mask it and how to plot and how to justify ourselves and how to make the presentation where it looks like we're a good guy. And we go around day to day to day trying to justify ourselves for our bad, sinful, evil behaviors. Welcome to human nature. Is it not deplorable? It's astonishing, right? It's astonishing. And I think it goes without saying, the depravity of man is deplorable. Take a look. Do you know what this is a picture of? Us. This is a picture of the human nature apart from Jesus Christ. And I want you to know something. It is appalling. It is ugly. Take a look, man. 
Dad, do you know whose tunic this is? Trying to cover their own sin, they're destroying the heart of their father, just crushing him. Verse 33, and he recognized it, and he said, can you imagine how he said it? Can you imagine the tenor of these words right here? The tears flowing down from his face, the steep sobbing, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. And no doubt, he was just sobbing and weeping. And he tears his clothes. And he puts on sack, sackcloth on his waist. And he mourned for his son for many days. I'm a father of four. And like you who are parents, man, I love my kids so much. I don't even understand how God gave me that kind of love. Uh, it's, like, it's like, I remember when my son was born, uh, I didn't live with my dad. I didn't know if I could be a good dad. I was a brand new Christian. I got saved when my wife was pregnant with my firstborn. And so I was praying, Lord, I don't know if I can be a good dad. I've never seen it. I don't know how, what it looks like. I don't know. And uh, I remember that boy came out uh, seconds out of the womb. It's one of the most miraculous things ever, watching a live birth. And that child comes out, and I clip the umbilical cord and hold him in my arms and I had a love for that child at that moment. It was a supernatural experience, one of the greatest experiences of my life. And here's what I knew. That love did not come from me. I would take a bullet for that kid. I would get hit by a bus for that kid. And I only met him eight seconds ago. And I knew crystal clear that love did not come from me. And here, these callous sons, a picture of humanity, with no care for the heart of who? The father. Go around sinning and justifying their sin so that they look good with no heart for the father. Uh, incredible. Uh, the depravity of man is absolutely appalling. He mourned for his sons many days, verse 35, and all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. Uh, not because he didn't want to be comforted, but what? He couldn't find comfort, right? Like, couldn't find comfort. And he said, I shall go down to my grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And I know we have one more verse, but we're going to stop there for right now. Uh, look at the depravity of man. Look how appalling it is. As there they are despising their own brother, uh, beating him, abusing him, and then going to their father with such self-righteousness. Father, uh, I'm just not sure. Do you know whose jacket this is, Father? Uh, there's putrid self-righteousness, right? Watching him grieve the loss of his son. The callousness of the heart is shocking. 
But I say all that to say, may we not be surprised by it. And instead, may we know ourselves. You say, me? No, not me. The Apostle Paul would say, I know that is of me, that is in my flesh, no good dwells. You see, apart from God, this is who we are. And one of the problems that we have in the world today is man refuses to believe this. No matter what history proves over and over and over again, man wants to believe that he is basically... Is man basically good? Look at the world. We fight each other. We abuse each other. We condemn each other. And all the time we're doing it, we elevate ourselves. This is the depravity of man. And it is dark. Uh, This is human nature. And apart from God's grace, this is who we are. It is only by God's grace that we can be transformed. And Paul, writing this in the book of Romans, spends the first three chapters of Romans trying to get self-righteous man to understand what? You're not good. You're not good people. You are radically sinful. And he culminates the first three chapters in Romans with this thesis, for all have what? Sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And I've told you this before. I'll tell you again and again and again. It bears repeating. In the Greek, it is the, in the current present tense, all have sinned and are currently falling short of the glory of God. That's who we are. Look at how Paul reveals this. This is, this is a sad indictment, but we have to know it in order to understand and appreciate the gospel. Uh, look how, uh, what, what the Bible says of us. Romans 3, verse 10. Uh, let me hear you read this in a unified verse. And let me give a little instruction as we do. Uh, it says, as it is written... And then it gives a bunch of phrases. Each one of these phrases are quotes from the Old Testament. And you can go on your own later and and look at each one of the Old Testament quotes. But Paul pulls here a bunch of quotes from the Old Testament. And so when he says, as it is written, that's what he means in the Old Testament. Uh, Let's read it together. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. Hang on, let's pause there. They have all turned aside from what? From God, from the right path, from doing what is good. They've all turned aside and they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Now, right now we saw Reuben do a little more good than the other scoundrels. And we saw Judah do a little more good than the other scoundrels. And so you know what we do? We measure ourselves by how well we measure up to the other scoundrels. 
And so Reuben says, well, I'm a better scoundrel than they are. And Judah says, I'm a better scoundrel than they are. And you know what we do? We like to compare ourselves among ourselves. And Paul would write to us in Corinthians that those who compare themselves among themselves are not wise. Do you know why we have sitcoms on TV and movies and shows and everything else that are so radically dysfunctional? You know, I mean, adultery, murder, uh, fornication, thieves. Uh, why do we like this kind of entertainment? Do you know why? Two reasons. One, because we're perverse. And secondly, because it makes us feel better about ourselves. Well, at least I'm not like Bart Simpson. Or at least I'm not like uh, the Kardashians. I don't know. I don't know any of the shows. Sorry. Uh, but you get what I'm saying, right? We, we do that. And uh, we're, we're all unprofitable. And there's none who does good. Uh, look what he says after. There's none who does good. What? No, not one. Um, uh, let's go on. Rest of the verse. You thought it was done, right? Like, wish it was done. Uh, I remember when I was a, a, a Christian, a young Christian for, you know, four or five years, I kept on studying, trying to figure out, like, who's Paul talking about here? Because I couldn't believe that was me. And it took me a few years of growing in my walk with Christ before I realized, oh my gosh, that's humanity. That's me apart from Jesus Christ, right? This is who we are apart from Christ. Uh, let's read it. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. Is that, is that true? With our tongues, do we practice just deceiving things to make us look better and to cover our tracks? Oh, we do. Uh, the poison of asps is under their lips. What's an asps? Yeah, the poisonous. We're venomous, man. Uh, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the thesis, the culmination of all of that. There's no fear of God before their eyes. You see, Dave, what are you trying to make me just like depressed this morning? No, I'm trying to show you the glorious work of Jesus Christ in our lives. Look at what he does. He takes wretched sinners that are that debased. And he says, now I'll begin to work in you. And I will make you born again. And I will open your eyes to things. And he is so patient with us on the journey. As the master sculptor and the master potter begins to mold and shape us. And to open our eyes to just exactly who we are. That we would then look to him and be so grateful for his grace and his mercy and his divine forgiveness. That is through Jesus Christ that he could take sinners like us, wash us, cleanse us, give us new life and create us into something significant and valuable. No wonder Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God is revealed. Wow. 
I'm so in awe of his power to take a selfish, sinful, wretched creature like me and to change us around uh, and to make me into something of his, of his image. What an amazing God. What an amazing Savior. And may I share with you, this is why we need Jesus Christ in our life. He is our only hope. He is the only way. This is why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father in his character, in his person, or in eternal life except through me. Uh, he is the only way. And this is why we need him. This is why we come to church. This is why we read the Bible. This is why we pray. This is why we're honest with God about our sins and we confess our sins and we ask Jesus to forgive us so that he can fill us with his Holy Spirit and begin to transform our lives so I would not be controlled by my deplorable, wicked flesh, but instead I would be led by the Spirit of God. And instead of being led to a life of guilt and shame that 20-something years later I'm still dealing with the pain and anguish of my decisions and I've got to get drunk at night to sleep so I can deal with this fact that I murdered my brother and instead I get to walk in the glorious liberty of the children of God and I get to watch him transform me and bring fruit that is amazing uh, Jesus says I've come to give you life and life more abundantly and only Jesus can give us that new life and church, let me remind us this morning, take a look at these men. This is who you are apart from Jesus Christ. And this is why we need to come to Jesus continually. Coming to Jesus is not something we do one time. Coming to Jesus is not something I did. I gave my life to Jesus 20 years ago. I gave my life to Jesus 30 years ago. I gave my life to Jesus last year. No, 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 no. I give my life to Jesus what? daily moment by moment i know that in myself nothing good dwells but i have god's spirit dwelling in me and when i come to him and when i'm seeking his face he fills me he leads me he guides me and he transforms my life but i must come to him daily and Jesus taught that so clearly. John 15, he said, listen, unless you abide in me, moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour, you can't bear any fruit in your life. You'll go right back to your old ways. But if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. And by this, my Father is glorified. I'll transform your life. People will look at you and they'll go, wow, that guy, that man, that woman, that family, that's something. That's something. And look at what God has done in them. Look what they have. Look who they are. How do they develop that character? That's the work that only Jesus can do. We have to come to him continually. I want you to know there is no neutral with Jesus. There is no neutral. There is no park. There is no neutral. You're going to get in your car. You're going to get out of here. I want you to remember this for every time you shift gears in your car now. I want you to remember this. There's no park and there's no neutral with God. There's only forward and reverse. There is nothing else. You're either becoming more like him or you're falling away. This is why we have to come to him daily. And I tell you what, falling away is a horrible thing. 
The Bible tells us that when we abide in Jesus, we become more like Jesus. But when we ignore Jesus, the Bible tells us we grow more and more and more corrupt. Take a look at this verse, Ephesians chapter 4, I believe. Yeah, Ephesians 4.22. Um, read it with me in a thundering unified voice. Put off your former conduct, the old man, which, which what? Grows corrupt. It's not only corrupt, it what? It grows more and more and more corrupt. And if you've ever seen a, a really old person and they're just a crotchety old soul, Uh, here's your drink. Why is, there, why is it half full? Here's your steak. Why is there no salt? It's like, it doesn't matter what you do, man. Just a gro cr crouchy, grotchety, I don't know if those are words or not, but I mean, just like, why? Because they, they, they've done what? They've grown corrupt. You young men struggling with sexual purity, you think that's a young man's game. You don't bring that under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You will grow corrupt. You think Jeffrey Epstein started out one day and said, I want to be a pedophile. I want to use all my money and all my power to ruin little kids' lives. Think he started out that way? What happened? He grew corrupt. May we be wise. Put off your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt. Read with me. According to the deceitful lust. Uh, man, I wish I, I, this is why I get in trouble. I just take too long to teach everything. Uh, according to what kind of lust? Deceitful. deceitful. They promise much, but they're, they're your, their lusts are deceitful and they destroy. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you may put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and in holiness. This is why we need to come to Jesus continually because this is the work he's doing in our life. And Jesus is so powerful, so patient. I love what he does. He turns guys like Joseph into prefigures of Jesus. He turns the apostle excuse me, he turns Saul of Tarsus into the Apostle Paul. I mean, how do you do that, man? This self-righteous guy, right? He turns Jacob's into Israel. Uh, how do you do That's the power of God on display. He turns sinners into saints, and he's doing the same thing for you and I. May we draw near to Jesus continually, daily. Uh, I love that through Joseph, God is revealing his plan of salvation, plan before the beginning of the earth, right? Plan before the earth was ever created. And I marvel at God for that. Like, God, you knew all this, and you still chose to go through it. Uh, incredible. Incredible. That the treasure in the field is worth all the filth of the field to the creator. Uh, amazing, amazing. And you are his treasure, his redeemed.
Uh, but this plan of salvation planned out before the beginning of time, we see some great parallels here, don't we? Uh, let's look at how Joseph's life is a harbinger of Jesus, is a prefigure of King Jesus. Number one, he was sent by his father on a mission of love to his brothers, just like Jesus, right? Number two, he was rejected by his brothers because of his testimony to his own brethren, and his own brethren happened to be the tribes of Israel. Sound familiar? Wow, how amazing this prophetic foreshadow. Uh, number three, he was sold to the Gentiles for the, a few pieces of silver, the price of a slave. Sound familiar? Amazing. Number four, his tunic was taken by his captors. Amazing. Amazing. Number five, he was left for dead. Thrown in a pit, left for dead. Number six, he was raised to power and seated at the right hand. Seated at the right hand, yeah, Joseph is going to be raised up to the right hand of Pharaoh, and he is going to be the Lord of all the earth, bringing salvation in a time of famine, and that is just a prefigure of what Jesus is, right? Uh, which is number seven, uh, they are the savior of the world. Uh, Joseph, the little savior, right? And Jesus, the greater savior. Uh, Joseph, a savior from starvation. Uh, Jesus, a savior from sin, death, hell, and eternal separation from God. Uh, uh, but man, what an amazing, amazing prophetic prefigure of King Jesus. And isn't it amazing that God is so sovereign that he can orchestrate all the things of Joseph's life even with evil, wicked men. God is sovereign. He's bringing all of this to pass. His plan of salvation clearly laid out. May that give us great hope as we sometimes look at the world and we read, read the news and we think, it's out of control. May I, may I assure you of something? It is not out of control. Everything is happening according to the Father's plan. And so may we, may we rest in that. Uh, let's see how much ground we can cover. Let's look at verse 36. Uh, we skipped that one. Um, now the Midianites had sold him, that's Joseph, as a slave, right, in Egypt, to Potiphar. Here we're introduced to a guy named Potiphar. And here we see he is an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of the guard. Uh, yeah, you might want to underline those things. We learned something about Potiphar. Captain of the guard means that he's a military man. Probably some kind of special forces. Probably the commander of the royal guard for the pharaoh. A very significant position. A very prominent man. A very powerful man, a very rich man, Potiphar. His name means, it's an Egyptian name, 
And his name means he who Ra has given. Ra was one of the chief gods in the pantheon of Egypt. He was the sun god. And Potiphar means the one that Ra has given. And that is where Joseph is sold to. And things look bleak for Joseph, but I want you to know, man, God is in control. And here Joseph has been grossly mistreated by his brothers, sold as a slave to the Egyptians, uh, so unfair, so cruel. And here's the question. Uh, he's been, Joseph has been grossly mistreated. How is he going to handle all this? What is he going to do? How is he going to take all this evil and bad things and unjust and cruel? And I mean, he's scraped up, he's beaten, he's bruised, he's probably bleeding. And now he's sold as a slave to some stranger. Can you imagine being in that situation? Let's look at what Joseph does. Uh, we're going to skip chapter 38, not permanently, but for today. And we'll come back to it after we're done studying Joseph's life. And we will read it. Don't worry. Uh, not that you are, but uh, chapter 39. Now Joseph, are you there with me? Chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, a captain of the guard, we read that, an Egyptian bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph. He was? Doesn't look like it. All the atheists would be asking Joseph this question. What question? Where's your God now, God guy? Your brothers beat you? Sold to Egypt, sold as a slave. Where's your God now? God is with him. God is sovereignly working. And Joseph is his clay on the wheel. And God knows what he's doing. God is building his man. The Lord was with Joseph. And he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord, very interesting, the word Lord there isn't God. The word Lord there is Yahweh, the covenant name of God with Israel. And the master, this, this Potiphar, this guy who is a, uh, the one of raw, right? Uh, this pagan, he can see that the true and living God is with him. And that the Lord, Yahweh, made, him, made all that he did to prosper in his hand. Joseph was just working every day and, and putting his hand to the plow. And, and, and yet his master saw that, wow, God is with you. Verse 4, so Joseph found favor in his sight, in Potiphar's sight, and he served him. Underline that, and he served him. Then he, that's Potiphar, after a long period of time, made him overseer of his house. And all that he had put under his authority excuse me, and all that he had, he put under his authority. So Potiphar just, get, he sees that Joseph is such a good man, such a good manager, such a good steward, so wise, so honest, so forthright, so diligent, uh, so trustworthy. He, he just puts everything he has and he's got a ton. Uh, so it was from that time that he made him overseer of his house. 
and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. He was a good investor. Everything he touched worked well. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. How many times does it tell us that? He left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did, he did not even know what he had except for the bread which he ate. He just said, hey, uh, Joseph, can I have a couple hundred bucks to go out and uh, like just didn't even worry about anything, right? Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Uh, lucky guy. Uh, <laughs> Joseph is a young man. His brothers beat the snot out of him at 17. He was 27 years old when he gets put into prison. So that tells us 10 years have transpired where we read this verse right now. Joseph is now 27 years old. And here's what we see. Joseph did not allow the cruelty and abuse that he experienced in life to define him. Joseph worked hard and he uh, did not allow himself to be a victim in life. He didn't say, oh, I can't believe it. Why has all this happened to me? It's just so unfair. I never get a break. This is horrible. I just, I, I don't, just, just don't think God likes me. He didn't do any of that. He didn't allow himself to be a victim. Instead, he walked in integrity. He worked hard. He served. Consider what Joseph faced at 17. Despised by his family, constantly bullied, beaten, sold as a slave, taken to a foreign land, a new country as a slave. How daunting would that be? A pity party would have sure been justifiable, right? And yet he doesn't do it. And you know what I am so bothered by in our culture today? So many today are wasting their lives with a victim mentality. Oh, well, I'm this ethnicity. Oh, I'm this. Oh, I'm this. Oh, I just... And uh, they're just constant sufferers. And you know what's sad about it? Is our government is giving them enough free hand handouts to keep them comfortably miserable. A constant victim. I want you to know God is all about feeding the poor. God is all about caring for the widow. God is all about loving and adopting the fatherless and taking them in and being a big brother, or being a dad, being a mom, being a friend. God is all about the, the, the needs of the poor. But the God who is all about all of these things also said, if a man will not work, let him not eat. Because if you feed a man that will not work, you will leave him in a constant victim mentality. And that is exactly what we are doing as we are getting more and more socialized. We are ruining lives. And if you are here today and you are on constant funding from the government, repent. Be a head, not a tail. 
Be a leader, not a borrower. Be a giver, not a, not a taker. This is God's will for our lives. Now, there's a time, right? Like, hey, if you're in between jobs right now and, uh, you know, you're, uh, maybe you're getting more seasoned in life and, and then something happened in your career. Hey, nothing wrong. You, you paid into, uh, unemployment your entire life, right? There's nothing wrong with getting help for a season. Uh, Ecclesiastes says there is a purpose for every season under heaven. That's not what I'm talking about. And don't beat yourself up. That is okay. But if you are in a constant state of dependence, you're in sin. And if you are not working hard to get out of it, I mean, you know, two jobs, get on it. I want you to know you're only hurting yourself. And there is this constant victim mindset. And notice Joseph, he had a right to pout. He had a right to say, woe is me. And look what he does. He puts his hand to the plow and he works hard. Uh, he served Potter for well. He was thankful. He had a good attitude. He served tirelessly. And over time, God blessed his work. Joseph became the governor of all of Potiphar's affairs. He had an incredible position because Potiphar was very, very rich. I want you to know there wasn't much middle ground in Egypt at this time. You were either dirt poor or you were filthy rich. And here, Joseph, God, uh, he is his work ethic. God blesses it. And uh, he's in Potiphar's house. And now he's ruling over everything Potiphar has. And Potiphar has a lot. He's got an elaborate home. He's got lush gardens. He's got gold vases. He's got lavish furnish furnishings. And Joseph was overseeing the whole enchilada. Uh, here's the question. How do you respond to adversity? How do you respond? We see how Joseph responded. How do you respond? You know what most of us do? Most of us, man, we get abused by somebody. We have something bad happen to us, and we just get really bent out of shape. And we say, I can't believe they did that. I just, and we just dwell on it, man. We make it into such a big deal. We don't let it go. We hold on about it and we complain and we complain and we complain and we complain. And here in February, what were we doing? Complaining. And then in March, what are we doing? And then in May, and I skipped April, uh, <laughs> we complain. And as we complain, we drill ourselves into the ground. Uh, then we get bitter. And then we start to medicate. And we medicate with all kinds of crazy things. We medicate with TV. We medicate with alcohol. We medicate with weed. We medicate with pornography. We medicate with shopping. We medicate with materialism. We medicate with... Uh, trying to make ourselves look really good on the outside. We medicate a lot of different ways, but it's not making anyone well. And after we medicate 
for too long, the very next step is isolation and withdrawal. And it just happens in our lives. May we be wise. Uh, adversity is not your enemy. Adversity is one of God's great tools. Let him use it to build you. You see, adversity defines a person. Adversity reveals who we really are. Adversity, uh, it, it shows us a mirror, if you will. Einstein said, adversity introduces a man to himself. Isn't that an interesting quote? Adversity introduces a man to himself. You see, anyone can be happy, even selfish people can be happy when they're getting their way. But adversity introduces us to who we really are. Uh, and may we be wise. Uh, I have a verse for you that has resonated in my life. And it's inspired me when I feel like giving up. Uh, you want it? Proverbs 24.10. If you faint in the day of adversity, read it with me. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Ouch! If you fall apart in the day of adversity, your strength is small. That verse has inspired me to not be me, but inspired me to be who God is building me to be. And that's glorious, man. Uh, how did Jacob have such fortitude in adversity? Have such mental health? Have such stout character? Uh, let's read these verses and see if we can figure out how he did it, right? Let's uh, ch check it out as we read. See if you can, you can find it. Uh, verse 7 we left off on. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. And she said, lie with me, Joseph boy. Now, Potiphar was really wealthy, really powerful. And here's what I know. Really wealthy, really powerful men generally have very attractive wives. And Joseph is 27 years old right now. His hormones are raging. He's a red-blooded Jewish man. And Mrs. Potiphar is a little haughty. <laughs> and it is quite possible that Potiphar, being a captain of the guard, is a eunuch. For that was common practice in Egypt. We don't know for sure. But either way, Mrs. Potiphar is jonesing for Joseph. Verse 8, but he refused, and he said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. He doesn't even know how many Teslas he has. He doesn't even know how much is in his bank account. He just trusts me with everything. There is no one greater in this house than I. Nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife, hint, hint, 
How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? This is amazing. In a land of temptation, with no accountability around him, no family, no anyone, uh, just in a land of moral depravity and compromise, Joseph says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against my God? Verse 10, so it was, as she spoke to Joseph, circle these words, how often? Day by day, by day, by day, by day. This was a thorn in his flesh. She was tempting him daily that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. And man, I want you to know for sure she was turning up the heat. She'd walk by in her little Egyptian secret outfit. Oh, good morning, Joseph. And she was turning up the heat, right? Uh, how did Joseph do this? How did he not fall apart when his brother so cruelly afflicted him? How did Joseph keep his chin up when he was sold as a slave in a foreign country? How did Joseph resist this intense sexual immorality uh, from this incredibly attractive woman? How did he do it? Well, in the text that we've read so far, there are three things that show us how Joseph thrived in adversity. Number one, he had great reverence for God. And we'll wrap up here and we'll begin to pick up next week on these. We'll, we'll wrap up with these three points, but take note of this. He says, look, how can I sin against God? He goes to the very highest calling. He is, his answer reaches the very highest ethical plane. This man was committed to the will of God. How can I go against God's will? Joseph believes God has a plan for his life. And here we see Joseph, he sees himself as God's servant. He doesn't see himself as God owing him anything. He's not walking around the house when he's sold as a slave going, why did God allow this to happen to me? I deserve better than this. No, he doesn't see God as his servant. He sees himself as God's servant. Big difference. And one of the best things we can do is wake up in the morning and say, God, I'm your servant. How would you like to use my life today? What do you want to do with me? I'm at your beck and call. Secondly, Joseph is full of gratitude to God for all that God has done for him. He quotes here how grateful he is for God's provision. He doesn't take credit for his own success. He believes God is blessing him. He knows that he is God's servant and he's grateful. He says, look, your master has, your husband has entrusted all these things into my, into my hand. Uh, I have, you know why he's entrusted? Because I walk in God's ways and God is blessing me. God has given all this increase and, and he, he just has tremendous gratitude for what God is doing for him. He's grateful. Joseph believes God's, God's promises. He believes that God has, has a calling on his life. 
He believes that God is working in his daily affairs and he's grateful to God for all of it. And you know what that does? That gratitude gives Joseph the vision, the wisdom to stay faithful even under hardship, even under sexual temptation. That is the power of being grateful to your true and living God. And this is what it means to walk with God. How can I sin against my master, my God, my creator, after all he has done for me? Uh, Gratitude enables Joseph to see past the hardships of the day, to see past the temptation of the moment, and to see what really matters. And that is the power of gratitude in our life. May we be wise. I want you to know gratitude is vital to your spiritual health. Gratitude is vital to your mental health. And gratitude is vital to your personal growth. And without gratitude, you will not be able to walk in the path that God has for you without stumbling miserably. Joseph has been through a lot, but he's not bitter. He's not depressed. He's thankful and he's thriving And he's full of vision for all that God has for him. And that is the power of having great reverence for God and having great gratitude to God. Uh, The third thing that we see is one that is often neglected in our lives. Joseph honored the authority that God had placed over him. This is even harder for men than it is for women, but it's hard for everyone. Joseph honored the authority that God had placed over him. Was was Potiphar a godly man? Not at all. But was Potiphar the authority God had placed over him? Absolutely. And Joseph understood God's will. Joseph knew God's ways. And God wants us to honor the authority that is over us. I want you to know this is a very important but often neglected ingredient for godly character and success. And for you men who are CEOs, you women who are CEOs and and leaders, I want you to know you are not immune from this and you are the ones that are most prone to bypass this in your life and it is very important. Who's the authority in your life? Well, your parents, God has called you to, to honor. And there's a bunch of others also, if you would just sit back and reflect on it. And I know that in my life, I can sidestep the authority that God has given me or I can choose to embrace it, to honor it, to respect it and to seek it out. And you're wise if you do the latter. Uh, These three traits, having great reverence for God, being full of gratitude to God and honoring the the authority that God has put over you have caused Jacob to thrive in the midst of trial, temptation, unfair, injustice, everything else, and to become a mighty leader. And we're watching God raise him up. And we'll pick it up there next week. Amen? You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.